ears wide open. A new series of podcasts provided by Anima Eterna Brügge. Second episode. What kind of instruments to play Schubert and Liszt? My last conversation with Jos van Imerzel had led me full of curiosity and excitement. I wanted to know more about the unique way Anima Etana follows in his approach of music of the 19th century. I wanted to know more about the instruments his musicians are playing and the way they play them to create that unbearable anima touch of authenticity. A forthcoming performance of works by Schubert and Liszt gave me the opportunity to ask directly to the musicians all the questions I had in mind. As most of them are living in many different countries, we finally managed to organize a virtual meeting with three musicians, who are members of Anima for many years. The violinist Mikolaj Skolka, Pierre-Antoine Tremblay, who plays multiple horns, and the oboist Stefan Verdegem, whose wide collection of oboes is famous among musicians. The first question I asked them was at the same time very simple and quite uneasy. What kind of instrument will they play for this performance and what are the differences with a modern one? Mikolaj was the first to answer. So the violin that I play is um, it's a historical setup. So of course the main things um, the main things is the gut strings and the originality of the instrument. So the instrument was built at the very end of uh, 18th century, which is it's which seems to be very proper for the repertoire of, uh, the first half of the 19th century. So the instrument it's not like coincidence which instrument do I choose. It is also very interesting about the uh, originality. Uh, it was made by Egidius Klotz, uh, that's the southern German um, violin maker. And it is very remarkable because uh, possibly the same violin maker built uh, also the instrument for Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Of course, this instrument was built a little bit later. Egidius Klotz, uh, he died in 1805, uh, and the instrument is was built in uh, 1793. So I think it's a very good uh, start point, let's say, for the for the music which uh, we are going to perform. And my bow, mm, it's a very early uh, tooth model. Uh, which is a bit shorter comparing to to the mod to the modern bows, and it's a little bit lighter, and it is also an original instru uh, original bow, which was uh, built um, by unknown violin maker in London between 1805 and 1815. And it um, it provides uh, a different colors. Uh, there are much more possibilities of creating the colors 
and of course there are there is a very big um, differences about the articulation so one can create really much more articulations uh, comparing to the heavier uh, modern bow Pierre Antoine would you also tell us what is or what are the instruments you will play in this program Well, this program is quite interesting because actually it puts together two uh, composers that are not so uh, far apart in music history. If you think of Schubert, he was born um, only some 15 years, more or less, uh, before Liszt. But the main difference between those, those two composers for us horn players is that Schubert wrote for the natural horn. So that's an instrument that doesn't have valves, that doesn't have the pistons that you see on a on a modern horn. And the natural horn basically is just a piece of tubing. Uh, so you've got the mouthpiece that goes at the beginning, there's nothing in the middle, and then there's the bell. And then in the 18th century, the horn players, they realized that by inserting the hand in the bell, it was possible to play the chromatic notes that were, that were missing on the instrument. So the interesting thing for this program is that we will play two different kinds of instruments. So at the end of Schubert's life, Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 1827, he died the following year, he wrote a chamber music piece for four horns and uh, men voices. And this is the first major piece written by a major composer for the valve horn. So Schubert, at the real end of his life, uh, got to know this new instrument that was invented some uh, 10 years before, but it took some time to, to catch up and for people to start using it. So actually, Liszt, Uh, most of what he wrote is written for the valve horn, so that's already much closer to the the modern horn that we have nowadays. The main difference is that the instrument has a smaller bore, it's closer to a natural horn. We can say it's basically a natural horn with added valves to it. Could you tell us more on the specific instrument you will play? Yeah, uh, well, the two instruments I will play, both of them are copies. Um, I'm, I mean, I have a a pretty big collection of horns. Maybe half of them are copies, half of them are originals. Um, for the natural horn part of the program, so for the Schubert, the interesting thing is that I will be playing a copy that uh, I just acquired uh, last month. I went to, to get it uh, from the horn maker in the United States. And it's a copy of the Viennese instrument uh, from 1810. So the, the name of the maker was Anton Kerner. And it was a family of uh, brass instrument makers. And he was the son of Anton Kerner also, who was making uh, instrument in the 18th century. So this will be the first concert that I will actually uh, use that horn. So that's, that's very exciting for me on a personal level. Uh, the main char characteristic, I would say, is that the bell is quite big compared to like late uh, 18th century instrument compared to the instrument that was used at Mozart time. And it also doesn't have a tuning slide uh, in the middle of the instrument. The instrument still is a pretty basic natural horn. It's still connected to the 18th century rather than a, a forward-looking instrument going to a more uh, technologically advanced So for the other horn, for the list uh, pieces, I will be using a copy of Alexander. Alexander was a very famous um, instrument maker in Germany, in Mainz. And this is also a slightly uh, bigger than the natural horn in terms of, uh, of bore. 
And it's an instrument that still accept crooks. So on the horn, every time that we change uh, tonality, we change the key of the piece, we have to add tubing or remove tubing. And this horn, even though it has valves, I can still put the crooks, put the horn in E flat, put the horn in F, put the horn in D, depending what the composer was asking. And then I can play the rest with the valve. So it's really a mix between the natural horn and the valve horn. It's not like once of a sudden the valve was invented and we forget everything uh, about the past. It took a lot of time for things to change and both techniques um, lived together for quite a while, actually. Stefan, we all know your collection of oboes is famous among the world of musicians and oboists. Um, but what, what were your main considerations in choosing the instrument you will play for this performance? Yes, I only have original instruments for 19th century uh, music, uh, 19th century oboes. I only have own uh, uh, original oboes except for one or two, but I have a, a very big collection. So I have kind of a choice, um, meaning uh, with this uh, remark that I'll I also have to look for the pitch. Um, sometimes um, some uh, different pitches are uh, required for the, from different orchestras. I believe it is 438, and I will use a colored oboe. This is made in Graslitz. It's a kind of uh, it's um, south of uh, Dresden. Um, it today it is uh, uh, Czechia. And um, it was Germany before, and um, uh, second half of the 19th century, uh, difficult to date this, in, uh, this instrument. And Stefan, um, could you tell us what, what are the differences with the modern oboe? Actually, the modern oboe is invented in France. It is a French instrument uh, used um, all over the world now, except from Vienna. They play Viennese oboe, and the oboes that um, Liszt knew and Schubert, there were German instruments, and uh, Schubert knew Viennese instruments. So they were quite different um, in key layout, key mechanic, and bore proportions. The French oboe in 19th century, uh, end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, became actually uh, the international standard. So these instruments, they disappeared. Stefan, do you mean that there are not only differences between periodic and modern oboes, but also between the different uh, nationalities of oboes in a, in a given period? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, the French um, oboes, they have a more narrow bore. And so the sound is also more slender and more brighter, while the German oboes have a very a wider bore and they, saw, they sound larger. While the Viennese instruments, uh, again, it's actually, it's in between the French and the German instruments. Um, they have also a more uh, narrow bore. So they also sound uh, a bit more slender, but they have the German mechanic. So it's it's a kind of a hybrid oboe, which still exists today uh, as the Viennese oboe. 
But for um, this project, we have kind of a problem is that actually for Schubert, we need a Viennese oboe or a Viennese type of oboe. And for Liszt, we need a German type of oboe. And so two different instruments and two different periods. And we cannot mix them up uh, in, in one concert uh, since the, 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 the pieces are mingled up. Uh, Schubert and Liszt during the concert, we cannot change uh, constantly instruments. Uh, moreover, for Liszt, you need a fully chromatic uh, oboe, meaning that all uh, semitones, they are equal. So that you can play um, fully chromatic and more remote keys. Um, and um, in the at the time of Schubert, uh, of his unfinished symphony, um, first quarter of the uh, 19th century, it was not the case yet. Um, these uh, were rather to describe as late classical instruments, while um, the Liszt instrument is a fully romantic and already almost a chromatic instrument. And um, we can play Schubert on a Liszt oboe, but we cannot play Liszt on a Schubert oboe. And Pierre-Antoine, is there also those kinds of differences in between different national types of horns? Yeah, the main, the main differences in horns and also I would say maybe in general and for brass instruments is that in Germany they had instruments that had slightly larger bores. Like the, and, and very often the two uh, big ideologies, if I can say, for, for brass making were the French and the German. And they were very often opposed. They had different, they went in different directions. French instruments uh, are a little bit smaller in terms of bore. So the sound is maybe a little bit more compact, more um, penetrating. And then with the larger bore, the, the German instruments, they are a bit darker in the sound. And this applies both to natural horns that were made in France and Germany. So like the French uh, natural horns, they were a little bit uh, clearer in sound and the German darker. And the same thing happens with the first uh, valve instruments. So when I say that we will play Liszt on German uh, valve horns, that means that the sound is quite dark for the standard of the time. The bell is quite big also. Mikolaj, I believe that in the making of the violin, uh, the two main different schools were Italian and German. Yes, uh, actually, um, if we consider the uh, instruments from that era, um, the best instruments uh, was perceived uh, built in Italy, of course. But uh, this German school and this Mittenwald school, from which comes uh, Egidius Klotz, uh, was basically fascinated about the uh, Steiner Schule, so-called, so this uh, remarkable Steiner model of violin. And uh, this Mittenwald school was um, also inspired by, by uh, Steiner and those instruments, but they could uh, go forward. They could also develop this technique and they they put some different, uh, let's say, philosophy in building the instruments. Could you, could you all tell us what is your opinion about the fact to play an original instrument or a copy? Uh, you know that uh, cembalo makers 
often claims that their instruments are better than originals because they are originals but in the brand new state. Uh, what is the best to your taste? Original or copy? Stefan? Well, uh, in case of an oboe, there is one law. It says the newer, the better. Because you blow uh, hot, moist air into a wooden body and that actually um, um, deteriorates uh, the instrument. So it doesn't get better by playing it, uh, except from maybe the, the, the beginning period, you have to break in the instrument and then it opens up. But after that, it doesn't get any better anymore. Uh, even Sometimes it gets even worse because the, the wood, it, st it starts to, uh, to move actually. And the board changes because of this, this uh, humid uh, situation uh, in, in effect that, that the instrument actually has to be re-reamed or the board has to be revised uh, because the instrument changed too much. Um, so um, I, I quite, uh, and some, some of my colleagues, this, they said, yeah, why should we play like two instruments of 200 years old Throughout the whole music history, oboists, they never did that. They always played on recent instruments. And that's that's quite true. Um, so, um, yes, copies. I'm, uh, I, I uh, defend uh, the use of copies very, very much. But in case of uh, romantic instruments, we have the problem of the keywork. The wooden body is not that difficult to make on lathes, uh, but the keys, they all have to be made individually. And in the case of uh, uh, romantic or late romantic instruments, you need many keys. And um, the make of such a copy is only interesting if you can make a large amount of instruments uh, to become cost effective. So, um, I only know one maker who makes a copy of a, a 19, late 19th century oboe. Uh, only one in the world, actually. Maybe two, but they have to make a lot before they can make it um, cost-effective. And uh, Stefan, does it mean that gathering together a huge collection of instruments that can be played is a real challenge? Um, I have now quite a collection of Uh, historical oboes and I can cover the whole repertoire from Lully to Poulenc which we already did with Anima Eterna uh, but it took me 30 years to find all these instruments um, so basically uh, they're not here around the corner in, a sh in some shop I, I have to find them all over the world sometimes I buy it on a picture and then it comes uh, by post here And it turns out to be a bad instrument or just average or not good enough or a wrong page or this or that. So uh, it took me many years to find all these fine instruments. And um, yes, it's kind of a problem. Mikolaj, we know that old violins have often been modernized, uh, often deeply in their structure. Uh, how is yours? Yeah, that's a perfect question. Because in the time that I bought this instrument, it was something like 25 years ago, I bought it uh, in a state which was uh, provided as a so-called modern setup. So uh, there were, of course, there were metal strings and the whole the setup was 
like uh, for for the modern player. But uh, something like 15 years ago, I decided to make a, a kind of remake of this instrument, which was quite risky task also for the violin maker from Berlin, uh, Mr. Bastian Mutesius, the magnificent uh, uh, violin maker. And he he made a really great job. And he remade this uh, this instrument for the for the ancient uh, setup, and I think uh, that was the very good decision. It's always very risky if we um, if we make up this kind of decision. It's a it's a really very risky because you never you never know. You are never hundred percent sure if it's going to be a good decision or not. In this case, it was perfect. I I, I can feel that there is um, like an, another power, another life in this instrument. So I'm very happy about this, and I think um, this uh, uh, let's say ancient philosophy um, seems to be much more efficient uh, comparing to to this. Um, to this issue, which I which I met at the very beginning of this instrument, about the very beginning of this adventure with my instrument. And Pierre Antoine, uh, what is your your own opinion? Uh, do you prefer originals or copies? I think it really depends. I think it's important that we play on good instruments, whether they're original or copies, because. Sometimes we play, for instance, I don't know, like a very old instrument that has maybe a beautiful painting that was really beautifully made, but it's not in a good state anymore. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with the state it was 200 years ago. And of course, uh, the sound is different than what it used to be. And this is, we're, we're a little bit cheating there because, uh, We think a lot with our eyes, with what we see. It's not like a blind audition, because if we were to try that instrument without knowing what it was, our judgment might be very different if we didn't know it was an original or a copy. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And of course, it's great to play original. We, we learn really a lot about this. And when they play great, well, that's, that's fantastic. But it's not always possible. For the horns, for instance, when we play original uh, valve instruments, the valve was a very delicate mechanism, especially at the beginning. It was not completely perfected. And this is this kind of mechanism that doesn't uh, survive very well the centuries. So it's very difficult to find like early valve horns that are in very good condition. It's very often it's leaking in the air. You're losing a bit of air. And then the instrument is not playing the same that it was uh, 150 years ago. Apart from the instrument itself, what are, in your opinion, the most important or the most interesting points in playing those musics as they were at the time, uh, in terms of uh, style or uh, usual practice from, from that time? Uh, how is it for you, Mikolaj? Yeah, there are so many things. There are so many issues which we, we could discuss or which I could uh, talk about uh, mainly if I if I look to to this repertoire there is some um, main topics which uh, are very interesting and maybe the first um, let's say methodology which I which I take to which I consider to to understand this music is uh, so-called tonality semantic, which is very fascinating for me. And I think it was very fascinating for composers and uh, the, the philosophy of compos composing the, the, the music. And what does this mean, semantic of, uh, of tonalities? 
um, if you if you compare to two first um, pieces, um, the uh, we, we are going to to play the overture for Zauberhafer, uh, the the tonality of uh, the, this uh, piece uh, starts in a in a C minor and then it becomes to the very bright C major. Then comes the uh, least Wanderer um, Fantasie. It's uh, also composed in C major. So this is significant. Twice uh, we meet in a C major tonality. Uh, and this is, I think it's very important to know what uh, those tonality to, uh, tonalities meant for those composers. And uh, I always try to study and to prepare this kind of picture, of tonality picture, uh, what does uh, those tonalities mean? And for instance, the C major, um, as I studied, it means um, for the um, romantic theorists, uh, the early romantic theorists, um, like Berlioz or Gavert or uh, Müller, it's very comparative. And this uh, C major is like a power, majesty, um, uh, humanity, uh, the um, power of life, uh, the joy of life. For Berlioz, uh, he considered it as a serious tonality. Uh, for Gavard, it was very well decided, um, well decided tonalities. So these are very main, very basics uh, of of composing of uh, this workshop of composing those works. So I think it's very very important. And Pierre Antoine, what what would you say uh, about this question of style or practice? Uh, is that as important as the instrument? I would even say that. Uh, The instrument might be uh, not less important. Less important is not the, the right word, but the, in the final result, what makes an even bigger difference than the choice of instrument is the way of playing it. And uh, the way they were playing uh, back then in the 19th century was really quite different to what we do nowadays. If we think of uh, the differences, the main differences, is that nowadays we tend to make big and very long phrases. So we try to make the phrase go as far as possible. But if you go to Baroque music, for instance, they, they didn't have this idea of a long phrase over 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds. It, it was more a combination of very small gestures. And this went on with the classical period. And even at the beginning of the Romantic period, There were smaller gestures in front, in the middle of the phrases. So one way of playing this music is actually to avoid a little bit going over uh, the long phrases and try to make the small units come out a little bit. And that's that's one of the things that we we try to do. Um, other things I know that uh, my colleagues, the string players, for instance, they use a lot of portamenti. So that means a little bit of sliding from one note to the other. And that's something that we know that they were doing quite a lot in the 19th century. And it's also something that is possible to do on the horn. Maybe not between every note, but there are some spots some uh, during the solos that you can you realize that the music is actually inviting you to do this. And this is something that nowadays we don't hear uh, modern musicians do because it's, it's a little bit considered... Uh, like not clean playing, it, it's a little bit too involved, let's say. 
But uh, this we know for sure that they did back in the 19th century. So those are two of the many differences that you can find in the playing. Stefan, would you agree with, uh, with Pierre-Antoine? Well, actually, most of the historical instruments, they tell us how to play. If I would vibrate on this uh, 19th century oboe, it kind of sounds like a saxophone. It's, it, it is not uh, asking for it. Um, so ju just to mention one aspect, it's that we have to diminish the vibrato or use it only uh, once in a while. Um, but not permanently. The permanent vibrato is something of the 20th century. Intonation is, is also a bit different on these instruments, but that, that counts for all winds players. We have to adapt to the instrument. We have to find different fingerings to, to make it sound. The main thing always is that actually we don't, we look at this music not with a, with the eyes of the 20th century, of the 21st century, but with the eyes of the 18th century and early 19th century. Meaning that we try to avoid all the traditions that uh, came in uh, this repertoire later on and through recordings. We try to, to start every time with a fresh start and forget about uh, Stravinsky and Richard Strauss when we play this. looking at that music with the eyes of 19th century, as Stefan had said. I was more and more fascinated with the extraordinary work in experimentation those musicians were engaged in for all these years. Once again, I wanted to learn more about all those questions. I knew that this forthcoming performance would involve the pianist Joseph Moog playing Liszt's second piano concerto just talked about last time. His point of view on those questions would certainly be interesting. I then knew what will be my next call. Join us soon in Here's Wide Open for a new episode. <laughs>